0: If you would turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter, or excuse me, Colossians chapter 2. I saw Philippians up there. Colossians chapter 2. I I come to you this afternoon. I just want to say thank you to Heritage Grace for allowing me this opportunity to stand before you. Uh, I don't take this opportunity lightly. Uh, It is with fear and trepidation that I approach this pulpit Knowing the uh, standard that has been set by Pastor Emilio and uh, knowing the, the standard that will be continued next week with Pastor Allen, uh, I, I take it very uh, seriously that I am up here. I, I thank you so much. Uh, I, I thank Pastor Emilio for giving me this opportunity and Pastor Allen, and I just hope that uh, you guys will be blessed by what comes out of my mouth, by what God has led me to say today. Colossians 2. It reads, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from a full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself." in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit. Rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Would y'all pray with me? Father God, we just thank you for the opportunity, Lord. I thank you for my brothers and my sisters who are gathered here today. Lord, I'm just asking that you would remove everything that is me. And Lord, just fill me with your spirit as I deliver your word to these, your people. Lord, we expect to hear great things from your word today. Lord, we ask all of these blessings in Jesus' mighty and holy name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. As I was preparing this For this message this week, I I ran across something that piqued my interest. It was the very first message that John MacArthur ever preached at Grace Community Church. It was called How to Play Church, and it was from Matthew chapter 7. And you know what? It was that passage where he says, not everyone will say to me, Lord, Lord, do you all know the passage? And get this. The message was preached on Friday, on February the 9th, nineteen. 69. Now, to some of you young kids here, that's going to be like right after the earth's crust cooled. You know, that's 1969 is a whole nother time. But here's the thing. That was a year after I was born. So that tells you how old I am. But God has blessed John MacArthur. John MacArthur has been faithfully expositing scripture in that pulpit for a long, long time. And you know what? Even back then, he was on fire. He was exhorting and preaching about the church. Pastor MacArthur loves the church. And how much much expository preaching, how much teaching has gone on from the pulpit of that church? How much counseling has gone on from that church? How many prayers have been lifted up from that church for the health and the growth of the body of that congregation? And what I thought about What I I was thinking about when I heard this sermon was John MacArthur's heart as a pastor. And that's what we see in our text today. If you'll look back in your Bibles to Colossians 2, 1 through 5, we will begin our study here. Colossians 2, verses 1 through 5. The title of our lesson today is Paul's Passion for the Church. Paul's Passion for the Church. As Paul begins uh, this tremendous letter to the Colossians, well, he begins to speak to them about the riches and the glories of Christ. He says, cr- he says of Christ in Colossians 1 and verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or or. Or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he continues on in verse 19 and, it's, and he says, For it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And he concludes that section by saying that he was made a minister of all of these incredible treasures just as, that he has just spoken about. You know, that's that's amazing stuff. But Paul also says that he suffered at times because of this. Now, there is one point that I want you to keep in mind before Paul launches into these excellencies of of Christ. And it's this. He says in verse three, we give thanks to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praying always for you. And again in verse 9 he says, For this reason also, since the day that we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But see, ultimately Paul is, uh, is working to spread the gospel around the world. And it says in verse 29, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works through me. And it is Paul's love for this church that causes him to write this letter. And then he moves on into our passage. The first thing that we are going to see is Paul's passion for people. Verse two, chapter two, verse one says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. That's the first point that Paul, is, that Paul is struggling, not only for these people in Colossae, but for people all over the place. He is a pastor, and he has a pastor's heart. He is a pastor's pastor. His heart is given to people. When Paul says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, he says that he wants them to know, oida. That is, get knowledge of, understand, or perceive how great a struggle or conflict that he has for them. This is a form of the word agon, from which we get the English word agony in the English language. Paul says that he is in agony for these Colossians. When Paul says that there is much dispute in the community about what this this struggle that he was having was, some commentators uh. Feel that due to the language Paul is talking here about martyrdom and these people that Paul is calling the Colossians to live like the Philippians. Uh, Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians and he said in Philippians chapter two, uh, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. While that is possible. And I and I can see what they're saying there. I don't think it's likely what I think Paul is saying. And if you can grant me some extension here is I want you all to know how great a struggle I'm having for you. And that struggle is causing me to pray for you constantly. Paul is praying for these people. I think the context of the passage and the previous verses that I mentioned will bear this out. See, Paul had struggles both internal and external. An example of an external struggle can be found in chapter 1, verse 24, where Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church. Looking for an example that's more related to an external struggle, you can turn to chapter 4 and verse 12, where Paul says about Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greeting, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. When a believer is in conflict or has a challenge, there will be prayer. I believe that this is what Paul is leaning to, what he's trying to say here. This, this strong stance of Paul here uh, is against the false teaching that was flooding into the church. Paul's conflict here is not limited to the inner struggles of, for his readers of this letter, be they intercessory prayers or for his constant battles in fighting and getting the, the gospel out. But rather, I think uh, that through his concerns, this letter is to be understood in the wider scope of paul 's attempt to spread the gospel, but it must be remembered that all spiritual attempts, no matter what you do for Christ, how great no matter how great nor how small, it all starts with prayer. The Bible is consumed with prayer, brothers and sisters, I have to ask you this question: Are you praying? Jesus on the most crucial night of his life in our lives, what did he do? He prayed in mark fourteen the Bible says they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very dis- distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little while beyond them, and he fell to the ground and began to pray that it w- if it were possible that this hour might pass, From him, Jesus Christ prayed in his time of need. If Jesus Christ can pray in his time of need, how much more do you and I need to pray in our time of need? When you have a struggle and I have a struggle, how much more should we pray, brothers and sisters? Prayer during these times is our communion with God. When we read the Bible, God speaks to us, but when we pray, we are talking to the almighty God. No, prayer is not to be taken lightly. See, as, as Pastor Emilio said last week, Calvin, while in the midst of the Reformation, prayed for two hours daily. Two hours. George Mueller, has anybody's ever heard that name? George Mueller, he prayed and through the unsolicited donations of people, he fed and clothed all the orphan, orphaned youth in Europe, in England. The Bible even says that Elijah was a man like you and me. But he prayed and God moved. Are you praying? When the cares of life rise up and start to choke out the desire for the things of God, what's the first thing to go? Prayer. We think we do not need God. We can do things on our own. But I want you to listen to this. Ian Bounds said this, and this is a very, very good quote. quote. The inward consciousness of spiritual need creates desire. And desire breaks forth in prayer. Desire is an inward longing for something of which we do not possess, of which we stand in need, uh, in need, something which God has promised, and which may be secured by an earnest supplication of his throne of grace. The absence of this holy desire in the heart is presumptive proof, either of a decline in, uh, a decline in spiritual ecstasy or that the new birth has never, taken place in quote he's saying look if you're not praying you're not a Christian but he goes on quote a lack of ardor which is just passion in prayer is a sure sign of a lack of depth and of intensity of desire and the absence of intense desire is a sure sign of God's absence from the heart to abate fervor is to retire from God He can and does tolerate many things uh, in the way of infirmity and error in his children. He can and will pardon sin when uh, when the penitent prays, but two things are intolerable to him, insincerity and lukewarmness. True prayer must be aflame. No erudition, no purity of diction, no width of mental outlook, no flowers of eloquence, no grace of person can atone for a lack of fire. Prayer ascends by fire. Flame gives prayer access as well as wings, acceptance as well as energy. There is no incense without fire, no prayer without flame. That's prayer. Brothers and sisters, a heart that has been pierced by grace will bleed prayer to God. Paul has had had a serious encounter with God on the road that changed his life dramatically. As we can we can see his prayers all over the text of the New Testament. I ask again. Are you praying? The Colossians, the Laodiceans and even those who had not seen Paul literally the face of me in the flesh have all been prayed for by Paul. He had a mandate, and we have that mandate now. But Paul moves on. The next point that Paul sees is Paul's—that uh, I see—is Paul's purpose in his struggle. Chapter two, verses two through three, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to. All the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What was Paul praying for? What was he agonizing for? What was he striving for in this congregation? I think it's the same thing that he would pray for, this con- for our congregation if he was here right now. It's the same thing I have to believe that our pastors are praying for, that our deacons are praying for, for this church. Paul had two bullet points, too, that he wanted the people to know, but th- uh, this struggle that Paul had, that he was engaged in, uh, he wants it to lead to a true knowledge of God's mystery, and that is Christ Himself. And how does He want them to get there? One, by being encouraged, and two, by attaining a full assurance of understanding. Let's take a quick look at both of these. Verse 2 begins with a clause that can lead to this sentence being divided up into two sections for the sake of clarity in English, okay? That's just a little point of grammar. But Paul was in effect saying that my goal is that you all be encouraged and all acquire a true knowledge in obtaining Christ. Then Paul says that he wants their, when Paul says that he wants their hearts encouraged, he uses the word parakaleo which simply means to call alongside. Parakaleo has many meanings and is a familiar word in the New Testament, but the meaning here is a little more nuanced, I think. I think the meaning here means that he wants them strengthened. Now, I know I'm standing against some, you know, some really smart men and brothers in Christ and guys that I love, but all words have to be defined in their context. You see, it's because of these false teachers that had um, settled in and taken root in Colossae that the, these proto-Gnostics, and I believe that's what they were, they had started to infect and affect the, the people in this region. And this creeping error had, uh, had begun to infect the region of the Lycus Valley. Now, not much is known about this infection, but we can, uh, we can deduce that it was Jewish, that it was philosophical, and that it denied the deity of Christ. And I believe that's why Paul uses the language here that he does in this epistle. These readers were, these readers were uh, needed to be strengthened, and that's what Paul is struggling for. He's praying for them. You can see a parallel in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where, he's, where the Bible says, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Paul prays for the strengthening of their hearts. It's kardia in the Greek, meaning the seat of man's emotion and his will. That is to say, the center of his or her personality. Paul desires Paul's desire is that all of them, Colossian, Laodicean, many of who are all who are far off uh, in a way, be strengthened in their innermost person. Once encouraged, Paul asked that the believers were to be knit together in love. Another way to translate this clause is to say to be instructed in love. Either way, I think it is it leads to the it lends to the context of this passage. Let me explain. Believers are members of a spiritual body of Christ, and therefore nothing should be out of place. Nothing should be disjointed, out of out of whack, out of kilter. In a perfect world, that would be true. But the the, the body of Christ, the church is filled with with sinners. There's sinners like me. See, we get things out of order sometimes and we need to be instructed in love. We should all be in submission to the one who is our head. As a matter of fact, the text says so. If you look down just below this in, in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, the Bible says, Let no one keep defrauding you for, uh, of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and holding fast to the head from whom And not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied is held together by joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. You can see also Ephesians 4 and verse in verses 16. Brothers and sisters, love unites one another to each other. But this heretical doctrine that had come into the church was divisive and schismatic. The legalistic and intellectual air had caused this congregation to begin to drift in their relationship to and, the, and the, her, their relationship to heretical teachers to accept non-apostolic teaching. They were called to stand together, and so should we. The Colossians were also being called by Paul to all the wealth that comes from a full assurance of understanding. He was saying to them. All of the wealth or fullness, words are synonymous uh, to mean here what Peter O'Brien in his commentary calls a superabundance of certainty or certainty that comes from, and, and you got to notice the article here, the full assurance of understanding. It's not a full assurance, not like there are many full assurances. You have one singular full assurance of understanding. And you can think uh, back in the context to chapter 1, verse 27, which says, to whom God will to make it known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The wealth here that uh, they were to have consisted of an informed conviction from the ability to distinguish the true from the false. One commentator said this. The essence of this spiritual understanding is the uh, the essence of the spiritual understanding is the spirit. The spirit-guided ability to perceive the redemptive purpose of God in the scriptures and to relate it to the complexities of modern life. This is a brilliant word choice by Paul. These Colossians would gain a deeper and more heartfelt knowledge of their Lord and Savior. Remember that the natural man does not understand the things of God. When Paul here uses full assurance, that is a phrase used three other times in the New Testament. One, the full assurance of faith in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Two, the full assurance of hope in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. And the here, the full assurance of understanding. Now, you can look to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, to see this connection with the idea of assurance. But I think the text here means, just the the text can also mean simple fullness. Well, a full assurance of what? What does Paul want them to have a full assurance of? Understanding. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I want a fullness of understanding. That strengthening and that and that full assurance results in a true knowledge that is epigenosis of the mystery of God. Now, if you have an NASB, okay, here's where it's gonna get a little tricky. Many words are, are italicized here. And when you look at the manuscripts for this passage, there are many variants and many possibilities. But I think it's always better to let simplicity reign and just kind of, you know, put it out there. I think it's, the best way to read this is to mysterio, to theo, Christu," And that's basically the mystery of God, big comma, Christ. If you're interested in more variants, you know, you got to talk to Dan Wallace at DTS because he knows a lot more about this than I do. Or you can talk to Chris because he likes very handsome he knows a lot more about this than I do look this knowledge was personal to Paul Jesus Christ is the mystery of God revealed in the flesh of man there can be no divine understanding or wisdom apart from Christ none if you think you know you don't know Paul has already said the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints. Colossians 126. Here, a mystery is simply something hidden from the ages past, which has been revealed to us. If you want to turn to first Timothy three verses 16, which which says this. <coughs> Excuse me. By common confession. Great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed by the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. All of these phrases in this ancient Christian hymn refer to Christ. In the early church, it was a life and death matter to affirm the deity of Christ, the deity of the Messiah. It is impossible to be a Christian today without a knowledge of God incarnate, and that is Jesus Christ. You got many people who run around and say, I'm a Christian, and they don't name Christ. I got news for you. You're not a Christian. You got plenty of people who run around and say, I'm a Christian. They don't know the name of our God. I got news for you. You're not a Christian. But many Christians live as if in him all sufficiency were not found. Here, the idea of Jesus being the mystery of God is spelled out in the Christology of the previous passages in verses, uh, uh, verses chapter one, verses fifteen through twenty. It is Christ who is the sum of all wisdom. Take a look at Psalm chapter two, if you have a second, one through eight, and as an example of the wording that's found in this passage being echoed repeatedly. Especially if you want to look at it, look at it in the Septuagint version of the Bible. There's a, a version online called the Nets, N-E-T-S, which you can find, which is uh, probably one of the best translations of the Septuagint you can find. Jesus is not a clue or a hint of, or anything else but God's mystery, but he is the sum of it. He is the essence of it. He is the apex of it. Everything we might want to ask God about his purposes can now be answered. And this is the force of the verse with reference to the sacrificed and risen Jesus, the Messiah. Paul then goes on to say in verse three, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, whereas the Torah was the epitome of wisdom in the Old Testament, it is now Christ who stands at the highest of heights of all divine wisdom and knowledge. The Torah was a precursor of the fullness of, of expression of wisdom and, and knowledge, which has now come in the person of Christ. Meaning that that before there there, uh, meaning, therefore, it is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. By which he means that we are perfect in wisdom if we truly know Christ. It is madness, I'm telling you, loony bin cuckoo bird, to wish to know anything without knowing Christ. Since the Father has manifested himself wholly in his Son, what man wishes to be wise apart from God, who has not contended with Christ alone? You simply cannot be that man, brothers and sisters. To gain any wisdom and knowledge, we must all come to Christ. We must know Christ, and can we do uh, can we do that? Having been, we can do that, having been strengthened and having a full assurance of the mystery of God in the same Christ. Now, as Paul moves to his last point here, Paul's uh, the passion of Paul's prayer. I say this. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and, stabi- and the stability of your faith in Christ. Well, why would Paul say what he said above? He says this so that no one will delude you. The teachers of this heresy were spreading. Uh, telling people that, they were, that there was something more that believers in Colossae needed, needed to understand there was, there was something different, something better, something that they had. They were saying something like, you know, come with us and you can learn the secrets of our religion and you don't need to learn all that stuff in that, 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 that Old Testament and you can, don't have to learn from those letters that come from that Paul guy. Just come with us and we'll give you the secrets. But what they were, they were saying this to, to both the simple-minded and the people who were grounded in scripture. But it was a false message from beginning to end. What were the believers being enticed to believe in? We're not actually sure, but it came by persuasive argument or enticing words. Calvin said this to this passage, Everything will be brought forth after this. Let it, ever so, let, let it have ever so imposing an appearance, will nevertheless be of no value. In fine, there will be no persuasiveness of speech that can turn aside so much of a breath of a finger the minds of those who have devoted their understanding to Christ. Brothers and sisters, do not turn on your television and be persuaded by Joel Osteen. Don't turn on your televisions and be persuaded by T.D. Jakes. Don't turn on your televisions and be persuaded by Creflo Dollar. Now, see, that's easy for us in this congregation. Well, what about this? Don't turn on your TVs and be persuaded by any TV show. I was so happy my wife told me this week. I I won't mention who it was who got rid of their TV set. God bless you, the people who did that. The radio, your smartphone, the internet, it's all good stuff, right? It's all good. It's all good. No, not if it leads your mind, not if it feeds your mind all day with persuasive arguments against the truth of God. Not if it takes your time away from dedicated Bible reading and back to our underlying theme here, if it takes your time away from prayer. Do we know Facebook better than we know 1 John? Be careful what you let into your head and to your heart Paul says that he would not use such language. He said, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. One commentator said, Paul's point is that even though an argument, these arguments seem to make sense, they sound reasonable, they are in the end false. Paul is not arguing against the study of philosophy or serious thinking, but is arguing against the uncritical adoption of a philosophy that is at odds with a proper view of Christ and the ethics of the Christian life. Don't be moved by words that don't lead you to that don't lead you to Christ, brothers and sisters. Paul moves on and he says here that even though I am absent in the body. That is, he is saying that he's in prison. But if he was not, he would deal with this heretical doctrine that came in. He would deal with it by himself. Quickly, and he would deal with it resoundingly. Even though Paul is not there physically, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit. If you can think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says in verse 3, For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who who has committed this as though I were present. While he was in Corinth, Paul promised to be with this congregation uh, that he was familiar with but here he is unfamiliar with the congregation he never met the colossians but he is still there somehow and paul was and paul was rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in christ paul here is rejoicing over the colossian stance in the gospel of grace he is happy over their discipline and their stability The two words here in Greek are are really simple. It's taxis and stereoma. Used together, they are words that have the connotation of a well-ordered Christian behavior uh, of the community, which has not been disturbed by the division in the church and and their solidarity of their faith in Christ. That's what Paul says. He's got a great struggle for these people, and he wants them to be encouraged. And he wants them to attain all the wealth that comes from knowing the mystery of God, Christ. Do you know Christ today? I ask you, is Christ your life today? Is Christ the center of your life today? When you wake up, do you thank God for what Christ has done for you? When you go to bed, do you thank God that Christ has got you through another day? As a Christian, it's all about Christ. We get our name from Christ. There is no wisdom, no knowledge. Nothing can be found outside of Christ. He is sufficient. Well, that's Paul's passion for the church. Brothers and sisters, this is a simple but profound passage of Scripture. Paul is saying that he is struggling and therefore praying that uh, the Colossians would be encouraged and have a full assurance of the mystery of God. And that mystery is Christ Jesus. And because of this reality, you should not be moved by arguments that and and that should uh, produce a stability in your faith and a steadfastness. Well, you know, so what? What does this have to do with you and me? If we think back to my opening illustration, Pastor MacArthur His prayer and his heartfelt concern for the church, they're like 40 years old. But Paul's are 2,000 years old, and they're inspired by God. And because of this, we can rest in the assurance that we can pray, as Paul did, for protection from bad doctrine, from false doctrine, and for the knowledge of Christ to be relevant in our lives every day. It all starts with knowing Christ. Keep Christ the mystery of God now revealed first in your life and in our lives. And we will be on our way to fulfilling fulfilling God's desire on this point. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. I thank you for these moments to share my heart from this passage, Lord. It's a tremendous passage of scripture. Lord, uh, you know my prayer, my... This entire week has been, Lord, just get me out of the way and let your word shine. Lord, we just thank you. I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for all that you're going to do. Lord, we just ask that anybody that uh, would be moved would be moved. And, Lord, we thank you for all that you've done. We're asking for these and other blessings. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. As we dismiss this morning or this afternoon, excuse me, I just want to read this benediction from you. It's from Jude chapter 24 and 25. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you.